Uh, it's Galatians 4, uh, verses 1 to 20. It can be found on page 1170 in the Church Bible, so I'll give you a minute to find it. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Let's pray together before we look at this passage. And dear Lord, we do pray, uh, as we look at this, you would um, give us ears to hear you speak to us, and hearts to receive of what you say. Amen. Um, well, if you've been coming to uh, the services uh, over the last few weeks, then you no doubt would have noticed that um, in Galatians, Paul is talking to the churches in Galatia, he's addressing one issue, and, and the issue is that the Galatians have come to faith in Christ Jesus, uh, but are now being persuaded to slip back into trying to live under the law, which Paul calls a different gospel. So he repeatedly is contrasting uh, living in Christ as opposed to living uh, under the law. Paul is, of course, not in a position to ping off a quick email and ask the Galatians to get themselves straightened out. So he writes them a letter. And uh, then it wasn't such an easy task to write a letter. 
and you've got to really want to do it. And uh, so you may ask yourself, that being the case, um, when he's made the point uh, once or twice, or maybe from a different angle, why he would continue making this point to them. Well, in this part of the chapter, 4, I think we begin to see why Paul wants to make sure that these Galatians uh, get the point. Um, digging through some old stuff that I keep, I keep a lot of old stuff really, uh, I found uh, this letter, which is a letter from my mum, and as I said this morning, actually she would prefer I say mother, from my mother to her father, my grandfather. And it was uh, written August the 30th, 1949, uh, which was way before I was born, incidentally. You know. <clears throat> and as I read it, I thought to myself, I, w- I wonder, what if my mother wrote this letter, hoping that one day I would pick it up and read it? Well, seeing as gone, God has gone to such a lot of trouble, great lengths, so that you and I now have this letter, so that we can read it. It must be that he intends that we get the point too. So I want to uh, look at this passage and I'm going to ask uh, three questions as we do that. Sorry, I've just seen on screen there, you can ask questions if you have any. Um, I guess you go, no, I wouldn't have a clue how to do that, but you probably do. Uh, so there you go, so using that. Um, yeah, so these are the questions we're going to look through uh, uh, as we look at the passage. What is it that is upsetting Paul so much? The first one. Why does Paul describe living under the law as slavery? And thirdly, what is our freedom in Christ? So we're going to look at the first of those. What is it that is upsetting Paul so much? If you looked at the, the passage uh, in, in the Bibles there, you'd notice that sort of halfway down just, um, after or before verse 8, it says, Paul's concern for the Galatians. Well, as you read it, you think concern doesn't come close because verse 11, he says, I fear for you what somehow I wasted my efforts on you. Then he says, verse 12, I plead with you. Verse 20, how I wish I could be with you because I am perplexed about you. Verse 19, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He agonizes for them, he aches for them, he fears for their salvation. When he had visited them first, and he talks about that in verses 12 to 16, and preached the gospel to them, they'd welcomed him with open arms. And despite the fact that he had some illness which must have made it, according to Paul, a trial for them even to have him with them, they would do anything for him. He received them, Paul says, verse 14, as if he were Christ Jesus himself, which is an astonishing thing to say. So you can feel here the love that Paul has for these people. He had become one with them, he says, for I became like you. So they had received the gospel. They had believed and received the Holy Spirit. Now some think Paul, I think, something of an intellectual, you know, he's all head and no heart. But here I think we see a tenderness towards these uh, uh, young Christians, this young church. He loves them. But what's happened is some false teachers have come among them and persuaded them that they need something more than the gospel. 
they need to start following these Jewish laws again. They wanted to win the Galatians over to their way of thinking, flattering them, and thereby alienating themselves, sorry, alienating them from Paul. So even when he challenges them, to them it sounds like the enemy. Verse 16, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now maybe in your life you felt something like this yourselves, when someone you loved is being pulled away from you by someone else with another agenda. Suddenly they seem distant and not the same. But for Paul, that's not the pain point. That's not really what he's worried about. What he yearns to see is, verse 20, Christ formed in them. He is fearful that they are being pulled away from Christ into putting their trust in something else. Now I think it's worth letting that um, point challenge us. Is there something for us in our lives or someone that is driving a wedge between us and following Christ, entrusting in him? When we look at scripture, we hear and hear it expounded to us, has he become an enemy by telling us the truth? The Bible is often challenging, isn't it? But we should not reject the truth simply because it's uncomfortable. So what is upsetting Paul so much is that the Galatians, whom he loves, having received the gospel with joy, are now persuaded, or being persuaded, to turn back to something else. So this brings me to my second point. Why does Paul describe living under the law as slavery? So now we're skipping back to the beginning of that chapter and we're looking at verses 1 to 3. Paul says, Before Christ came, you were like heirs who were under age. Children. So, okay, you could argue that you were heirs to the promise, uh, but, but while they were striving to keep the law, they didn't have the blessing. Potentially it's all yours, but in experience, you may as well be as slaves. In reality, you have no freedom. You're subject to all the restrictions, none of the benefits. As he says, slaves under the basic principle of the world. When I was a, a teenager, I had a mate who uh, was heir to this, well, this, this farm belonged to him. Um, but, you know, until he became of age, he didn't actually get any of the benefits. So for him, he, was, he worked on the farm, but I don't think he got paid, really. So he was no better than somebody who was actually a, a worker there. And... Uh, he had all the restrictions. So the farm was all his, but it actually made no difference to him. It didn't benefit him. So that's the same as Paul is saying, that if you're trying to earn your way to salvation by keeping the law, you may as well be slaves. So he asks them in verse 9, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? He fears for them because what they're doing is moving from freedom to slavery. And Paul says, verse 10, about them observing special days and months and seasons and years, adhering to certain rituals or observances. 
It's become a dreary routine of rules and regulations, all formal, like a religion that's on the outside, and losing the joyful communion with the Father that they did have. He says, verse 15, what has happened to all your joy? Now the law is not a bad thing. It just doesn't have the power to save or to bless you. It does have the ability to point us to Christ. It's a bit like when you're wearing your best new white trainers and you go out in the snow and you look down and you realise the snow is a lot whiter than your trainers. Actually, it shows that they're not white. It shows up. The law shows up what we are. But you may say to me, if the letter is also for us then, you know, are we people and other people we meet, are we ones who are being um, tempted to pull ourselves back into Jewish law? You probably don't feel that at all. Well, I want to just point out two things to you quickly. It's interesting that all of us, even if we reject God altogether, try and justify ourselves by some law even if that law is something we write ourselves. So people say, I try to be a good person. I feed the cat, help old ladies across the road, uh, or maybe um, justify ourselves by other efforts. You know, we, we want to save the planet. We are reducing our carbon footprint, put out the recycling, give to the Salvation Army at Christmas. I guess all of those things are good things, but are they good enough? So if you ask someone whether they thought they were a good person, I think most people would hum and haw about that. But if they did say they were a good person, would you believe them? Apparently the, 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 the recent phrase is, I try to be the best version of me. <clears throat> But what does that even mean? I mean, that's a bit unsatisfactory. I mean, if you went into a supermarket and there was something on the shelf which said, this isn't very good, but it's the best version we can come up with. It doesn't sound very attractive. So if we were honest, even by our own standards, we fail before you even apply what God's standards are. But the, thing is, the second thing I want to say is this letter challenges us who are in the church in, with regard to what you are putting your trust in. You say, I think we are far too easily attempted to justify ourselves. We put too much emphasis on the good things that we are doing as if they earn us some sort of credit points. We who too have this tendency to slip back into justification, self-justification. My sister was talking to this, uh, this group, this bunch of people who were uh, from a church group, and uh, they were talking about heaven. And one person who was uh, in the group was a little exasperated, and they said this, I really don't like the way you Christians are all trying to do good things to get into heaven. How is it that a person completely misunderstood what the Christian faith is about? She is thinking that being under the law is Christianity when it's the opposite how is it that we the church have somehow got people to believe that we are doing good things to earn our way into heaven but when we see what churches 
often concentrate upon and how they come across on the media. We do wonder sometimes, don't we? It does look a lot of rules and regulations, rituals. So Paul has reminded them that living under the law is not freedom. It's slavery. So my third point and final point. What is our freedom in Christ? Well, Paul wonderfully, uh, sorry, didn't mean to do that. Uh, Paul wonderfully um, <clears throat> explains this in verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. We were in slavery, but when the time came, had fully come, or in the fullness of time, God sent his son. And let us consider just for a moment historically what that time was. It was a time when the Roman, Roman Empire had conquered and subdued the whole inhabited world. They had built roads that for centuries after would not be that good. They had legions stationed along those roads to protect the travellers. The Greek language and culture had brought this cohesion to society. The old mythical gods of Greece and Rome were losing their hold on the common people whose hearts and minds were hungry for a religion that was real and that was satisfying. And the law of Moses has done its work of preparing men and women for Christ, teaching them but holding them sort of in his prison so that they longed ardently for the freedom that Christ would bring. Just then, God sent his son to redeem us and to give himself for us, as Paul said in chapter 1. Then in verse 5, to adopt us as sons. Not that only to rescue us from slavery, but to adopt us as sons. And in these verses, Paul spells out how Jesus was perfectly qualified to do just that. So he's saying, he was a son of God, but born of a woman. So human as well as divine, the only God-man. He was born of a Jewish mother into the Jewish nation, so therefore subject to the Jewish law. A law which he then submitted to, met the requirements of it, and succeeding where all others either before or after, had failed. So he was uniquely qualified to be a man's redeemer. You won't find another. If he had not been a man, then he could have not redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed the unrighteous. If he had not been God's son, then he could not have redeemed us for God or to make us sons of God. But God did not leave it there with just sending his son. Verse 6, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit which calls out, Abba, Father. So Paul also talks about that in Romans. There. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received 
brought about your adoption to sonship and by him to cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So he sent his son that we might have the status of sons. He sent the spirit that we might experience it. Not in some big dramatic way, but in the quiet inward witness of the spirit as we pray. That is a tremendous freedom, a tremendous blessing. For those who put their trust in him then, salvation is not sort of hanging in in the balance, depending on whether we keep to the law by the letter or whether we consider ourselves good enough, but rests entirely on the finished work of Christ. Formerly you did not know God, he says in verse 9, but now you do. And Jesus says in John 17, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know him is eternal life. So that is then what Paul, or why Paul, repeats this message. The folly of the Galatians is that they seem to be saying they would prefer to be slaves. Most of you probably know the the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. So son has sinned against his father, he's rejected his father, wants to, he's taken his money and gone away and spent all the money, made a wreck of his life, hurt his father. But he comes back to him and he says this, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It is one thing to say we do not deserve it, as a prodigal son does. It's something quite different to say we do not desire it. We need to keep reminding ourselves of what we are in Christ. Keep meeting together to encourage one another. We keep, look, keep looking to the scriptures to teach and to challenge us. And keep praying to our Father who loves us through the Spirit whom he has sent. I pray that you may all know him and the blessing and freedom he brings. Amen. Wonderful. Um, Thanks so much. We've got one question, but it's a whooper. Um, So the question is, Andrew... Um, how are we free in Christ, but also slaves to righteousness? And there's a bracket reference, Romans 6. So for those of you who don't know Romans 6 off by heart, I'm just going to make reference to a couple of verses to sort of orientate us. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, so Romans 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. 
So basically, if we're not under the law, can we do whatever we want? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good question. And um, you guys have been talking about living under the law and saying that that won't save you. But of course, it doesn't mean that you don't then want to keep the law. Um, I mean, we're gonna, chapter, when we get to chapter 5, this addresses that question, I think, as Robert said before. So uh, we're going to look at that, but that's, you know, I'm not going to skip the question. I'm going to try and give you some sort of answer anyway. So um, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So, but it's a very big difference between doing good things. Like, like the Ten Commandments is great, the Ten Commandments, aren't they? If anybody looked at that, they would know that was the right way to live. So, but there's a big difference in, in, in obeying commands because you think that's going to save you. That's going to be your salvation because somebody will look at you and think, this person's good because they keep these laws. And, uh, there's a, but big difference to that. And knowing that you can't keep them, but trusting in Christ that he saves you and out of love and response to his uh, love for us we then commit ourselves to good things, doing the good works that he has prepared for us, as it says elsewhere in scripture. So, so we're not free in that sense. In fact, we, we, the Bible says we are slaves to Christ because we love him and we follow him. That, so that's what we want to do with our lives. We are given our lives to him through what, because of what he has done for us. So... Yeah, so I, I, I hope that shows you the difference between keeping the law because you think it's going to save you or keeping the law out of love for the one who has saved you. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you very much. I think that's very useful. And you've also given us, got us excited for the weeks to come on Glacier. Yeah, I hope so, yeah. Wonderful, yeah. great.